Season 4, Episode 5, Justice Denied, with special guest Jules. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report, a podcast for news and analysis regarding the January 6, 2021 attack on the nation's capital, as well as continued updates uh, and uh, research on documentary evidence from the ongoing series of legal cases against Donald Trump and his co-conspirators. I'm Scott Kuhn. This will be a special episode, uh, another one of my all-too-infrequent episodes featuring a guest, and um, this will be my first repeat guest, Jules, a sedition hunter who specializes in sedition VIPs, who we heard from previously in Season 3, Episode 17 in April of 2023. Um, There may be some audio hiccups with this interview, unfortunately. Um, You know, the marvels of technology are such that... um, is in some sense of both a blessing and a curse makes things possible, but it is not always 100%. I will edit it as best I can. Um, Jules and I talk about uh, people who have evaded justice so far. We are coming up against the uh, five-year statute of limitations for January 6th, of course. So that will be January 6th, 2026. And unfortunately... Uh, yeah, I mean, there are some some instances where perhaps there are people who could be charged for things afterwards. Uh, we saw, for example, in the Oath Keepers case, the government was able to successfully argue that the conspiracy continued after January 6, 2021. Nonetheless, that's concerning, and there are people who are on Capitol grounds, organizers, planners, and even attackers uh, who are whose identities are known, uh, sp- especially with regard to VIPs, um, who have yet to be charged and who it looks like uh, you know, may, I mean, we're we're up against it here, right? These are people who are currently attacking democracy, engaging in the same behavior that they did, and um, are yet ready to be in position for the uh, presidential campaign in 2024, and possibly to obstruct that uh, if Trump should become the nominee, and if Trump should lose. So that's concerning, and uh, we talk about a number of people um, and I don't necessarily want to spoil that. Um, also, in the second half of the show, I will go through uh, a number of things. I'll talk about the slowdown in arrests. Uh, we're currently at uh, 1,173 arrests, although, again, of course, that can change every day. I'll talk a bit about uh, the defendant, Avery McCracken, um, Covered Dragon, hashtag Covered Dragon, um, who has uh, reached a plea agreement uh, for one count of obstruction of law enforcement officers during civil disorder, um, and I will spend some time on the Jenna Ellis plea deal, the Ken Cheesebro plea, plea deal, and uh, the Sidney Powell Georgia plea deal as well. So we're up to four defendants in Georgia, Scott Hall, Powell, Chesbro, and Ellis, all pleading in the cases in Georgia. Um, and then we'll spend some time looking at uh, the various ways in which Sidney Powell has been connected to other defendants. Uh, and I did this by looking at all of the, the transcripts in the from the January 6th committee and looking for the people who mentioned Powell's name. And I find some interesting things about people who took the fifth when they were asked about Powell uh, and some other information, especially with regard to what happened at Tamatli Plantation. Uh, this has still been an open question for some time. This is where there's a central group of plotters to include people from Team Crazy, like Mike Flynn, uh, Patrick Byrne, um, and Sidney Powell, and uh, you know others, possibly Garrett Ziegler, who may have been there. 
Um, I'm 90% sure, but he may not have been operating out of there, but he's certainly in contact with those people. Byrne mentions him in his transcript. In any event, um, Powell is well-connected. Even if she is um, nuttier than a squirrel turd, nonetheless, she has connections all over the place. And so I know, you know, Cheeseboro's plea deal took place in the same same week. Nonetheless, I've been talking a lot about the fake elector's plot recently, so I think we have a good background on what he did, uh, you know, how he was at Jan uh, the Capitol on January 6th, how he shattered Alex Jones around, and more importantly, his central role in sending out the uh, fake election paperwork in order to submit these slates of fake electors that... Um, ultimately, were to have been substituted for the actual electoral certificates in the event of the occupation of the Capitol, because that's what January 6th was all about. Delay, obstruct, occupy, maybe scare the Supreme Court into making a decision, and or actually take hostages, intimidate Congress so that they would uh, ratify the fake slates of Trump electors. And so uh, it is highly significant that he is pleading, also again, um, highly significant that Powell is pleading. Ellis, perhaps less so. Um, she's not well re regarded by even her own co-conspirators, seem to regard her as something of a joke. Um, nonetheless, significant that people are getting scared uh, of the actual possibility of consequences for their actions uh, on January 6th and leading up to it. So without further ado, uh, we will go right into my conversation with Jules, and then we will uh, cover some other material after that. And we are here with Jules, our tradition VIP expert. Uh, Jules, of course, is our first guest on the show, and we had her in uh, April of this past year. Jules, welcome. Hey, happy to be here. So excited to be your first return customer or your your first return uh, guest on the show. Yeah, maybe we'll we'll have to get you uh, uh, official credentials or something. Um, <laughs> I can, yeah, make me some press credentials like the ones that some of the some of the guys wore up at the Capitol. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just about as official too. So right, exactly. Um, yeah, so That's we are now at the point where we are looking at the uh, the statute of limitations coming up, uh, five-year federal statute of limitations, and yet there's still some people who appear to be escaping justice. Far too many, it seems, and it, it does seem to be really looming quickly, isn't it? This last year really scooted by fast. I can't even believe it was been six months since I was with you last. It just seemed like it was yesterday. But, you know, two more years will be just a blink if they can't kind of pick up the pace with some of, some of the, uh, um, you know, accountability for people that were responsible or at the Capitol. And yet we've seen sort of like in Georgia at least finally some accountability for some of the the inner circle and the, the coffee county stop all that sort of thing. But a lot of the on the ground people on January 6th, cheese bro aside, appear to be escaping consequences. Yeah, it, it certainly does seem that way. And I am jazzed about what's going on in Georgia. Um, I, it's like I kind of thought maybe when I signed in uh, to the internet today to go on X that there'd be another message saying somebody else flipped, but I haven't seen one yet. Dang it. 
Maybe later. It's, yeah, it's cascading, uh, which is it's cascading in a good way. Uh, Scott Hall, uh, Sydney Powell, and uh, Cheesebro, not really all that connected with Powell, but I know, nonetheless, decided his sense of I'm just a lawyer wasn't going to work. No, he sure tried his best, though, didn't he? It seems like he threw everything but the kitchen sink at, uh, at uh, Fonnie Willis, trying to get out all that, for sure. I'm surprised that we haven't heard that Mike Roman is cooperating there, seeing as he's already proffered with Jack, uh, Jack Smith. You yeah, know? he's another one who's, I, I think, very ideologically motivated. And, of course, we have Jenna Ellis plead. And yet, if you look at her lead on anything, it's, it hasn't changed at all. She's just oh, really? continuously. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. It seems like some of those people are really good at turning on the crocodile day tears when they're standing in the courtroom, you know. And then... Well, but we've seen that with the with the sedition VIPs, some of the ones that have, or actually any of them, you know, the people that going in a, in front of the judge and telling them how terribly sorry they are and blah 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 blah, blah and then going right back to just exactly what they'd been doing before. That's kind of sad. I mean, it's really sad, but for sure, I'm hoping that Roman does. You know, we hear more from him on the record because. He's going to be one of the people that, uh, you know, brings in a chance of, of um, you know, he's deeply connected with Ali Alexander, for example. And um, I, I'm really hoping to kind of crack into that, uh, that wall that seems to be just enough um, deniability between people like Ali and what was going on with the Trump campaign and the, um, um, you know, the White House, etc. But he'd be great. I'm looking for that. I'd like to see that happen. That'd be that'd be great. I don't know if it, it, if it is going to happen. Uh, uh, but yeah. you know, I think that with the Powell and Cheesebro, they're, they're going to get so much. Um, and oh, absolutely. About Mark Meadows. Yeah, absolutely. You know, especially with Cheeseburger, I, I really want to know. I'd love to hear what they're going to ask him about what he was doing at the Capitol, what he was filming or streaming, where that was going to, you know, the, the whole period of time that he was following Alex Jones and his posse around up there. Um, you know, maybe a coincidence, but it seems to me like it was almost exactly the same amount of time that they say that Trump disappeared for. You know, when he, they, you know, 70, 79 minutes where he went into his dining room. It's just about the same amount of time that Cheeseboro was at the Capitol filming. So, And, of course, Alex Jones was a stand-in for Trump, and so that's an interesting coincidence. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of what I'm thinking. But I, I, he's going to be great. I think in the end he'll probably um, do what's best to save him, you know. I, th I think it makes a lot of sense that Cheesebro and Roman were both there, although I understand we don't have any other images of Roman other than the fact that he appears to have taken a picture at the Washington Monument with the mob there. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I I haven't seen anything uh, definitive for him, but it would absolutely not surprise me if he was not there. So he was deep, deeply invested. He has been for, for quite some time. In like uh, ideologically, and then you know being with with Trump that long 
with the the two campaigns and working at the White House in between. So, and it's professional for him as well. I mean, he's done internationally. He's involved in business as well. Or maybe the Canadians can charge him. <laughs> that maybe there's hoping. Here's the hoping. So. Um, he's he's a big deal to me. Um, you know, I uh, picked up on the fact that he was so so connected to Ali pretty early, um, as are a number of people. But I'd really like to see see where that path goes with him. He's had a, a little bit of a slowdown with arrests. Uh, they they were doing really well last month, but we're now up to one thousand one hundred seventy. Yeah, um, it has been kind of a, a slow couple of weeks, hasn't it? They, yeah. they seem like they really burned through the uh, AFOs for for the summer months, and now uh, things seem to be slowing back down again, which is really frustrating to watch. You know, it's like waiting for paint to dry sometimes, so seeing seeing if anything's going to come from some of this stuff. Well, and on the VIP front, I did have um, Philip Anderson. And I, I think I lost you again. And I can hear you again. We're back. Okay, good. Okay. I, was, I was happy to see Philip Anderson because he was pretty egregious while he was up at the Capitol, for sure. Um, some of his actions were pretty off the charts, so it's good to see. But how long did they end up? He didn't get much time, though, right? What did his I sentence? Yeah, no, I, I don't recall. Um, it seemed like he, it. He, he was just. He was only just charged, right? Yeah, uh, recently. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I was thinking that he'd gone to like Owen had been sentenced, but no, you're right. I think he had just been charged recently. Yeah, that's a really late uh, pickup, and of course, yeah, I guess uh, the big one as far as some of uh, some of the other VIPs would be Nathan Hughes. Oh, absolutely, yes, yeah, that was um, a long time coming, and one that I know the Sedition Hunters uh, overall had been really paying a lot of attention to for his, you know, all of what was going on with him at the Capitol and stuff. So everybody was super excited to see that finally come down. With him. And of course, yeah, it was Cindy Chafian and uh, was it Scott Chafian? And, you know, um, those are also people who, you know, hopefully one day might face some charges. I think that'd be great. Um, I honestly, you know, we were kind of talking about the whole idea of justice denied or delayed, but. I still can't figure out why the January 6th committee, you know, didn't push the point with her on her subpoena. Um, I uh, recently worked with uh, Jordan Green on a story for Raw uh, Story about about Chafian, and uh, she was openly defiant. You know, she was already back to organizing events by the time that all that went down and basically just standing on stage at some of those reawaken events and, you know, a double dog dare you <laughs> to roll me up kind of thing. 
and she seemed to just get away with it, you know, which is unfortunate. Yeah, and and also Ed Martin from uh, yeah, Eagle Forum. Yeah, he's um, he's so central to so many things, and it it uh, the the more that more time goes by, and the more things his name pops up with, uh, you know, an affiliation with. Capital Hunters did a really great thread the other day talking about uh, pardons, Mike Flint, Mike Flynn's pardon, whether or not it was a quid pro quo, quid pro quo, sorry. Um, but Ed Martin was uh, integral to contacting, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, Vince Haley, maybe, that we still And I lost you again. Can you hear me now? Yeah, we're back. Okay. Um, but Ed Martin was integral to the uh, the push for Mike Flynn's pardon and doing text messages uh, through somebody that used to work for uh, Newt Gingrich because they, he, uh, as he put it, that he was, we needed Flynn to rally the base. And so they started right away after the election. But... Uh, you know, Martin, if you look at it, he was involved in the fake elector scheme. They, you know, you see him at the press conference with Ali and Alex Brusewitz and, uh, you know, the Michigan electors. I think it was the day after the Electoral College finalized on the 15th, I, I believe, of December. Um, but he, I'm almost positive that Ed Martin was the one that was feeding Ali information um, about possible plans, you know, as far as, uh, you know, how they would proceed uh, hearings and rallies and, and trying to get the legislatures to go into special sessions or whatever they needed to to uh, deny Biden's win. And that started within days, like November 8th. So I really, I wish they, another one, I really wish the January 6th committee had uh, been firmer with uh, his, uh, you know, him blowing off a subpoena like that. And today we are, of course, having Steve Bannon's appeal of his conviction. And I still don't think it's going to do any good. <laughs> <laughs> but they're really good at dragging that clock out with all this stuff, aren't they? It's amazing, and they're they're going through through this with with Bannon and Navarro, and it is uh, it is odd that they wouldn't have done it with someone like Chapin and Martin. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, all of them so important, but. I guess to me, the thing that really presses on me right now, not only with the, the deadline as far as the statute limitations, is that so many of these players are out on the field again and they're already doing the same exact thing, getting ready for 2024 that they did in 2020. You know, so the, the, the longer they stay on the chessboard, the more of that kind of stuff is already starting to, to take root. And, and, you know, of course, Steve Bannon being the driving factor of almost everything in D.C. anymore. 
Um, he just, he, it'd be hard for him to do his podcast from, from prison. That's all I'm saying. It'd probably be great if he could get that done. Well, they all get tablets now. So, you know, uh, that's something that's changed the last 18 months. Federal inmates have access to electronics. Not a great idea, in my opinion. No, not when they're, like you say, shitposting while they're doing their, doing their time. So I think that's crazy. Yeah, because they, they're, they're drug kingpins, you know? There are people running criminal organizations. Um, and I think the Trumpist movement is one at this point. Oh, absolutely. Criminal enterprise. Yeah. And I would agree. Prove that in Georgia, presumably. Um, so who are some other people on your radar? How about uh, Erica Wolf-Jones? Yeah, uh, she's definitely on my list. Uh, who else? You know, Michael Coudre is somebody that, for the life of me, I can't figure out why they didn't subpoena him for the January 6th committee or why he... You know, why we're not hearing about him having any contacts with the Department of Justice. I mean, he he basically was joined at the hip with Ali Alexander for eight weeks or longer during the period of time that, you know, post-election through January 6th and, and beyond. He, I'm sure, literally saw everything. He was on restricted grounds. He, you know, while he's on restricted grounds, he appears to be when he's on the balcony acting as a lookout and, you know, transmitting uh, signals possibly with uh, flags and commenting on like the smoke, the red smoke and stuff in the text. So he was, you know, he was right smack in the middle of all of it. And, and it seems like as soon as Brandon Straka got picked up, he was on a flight to, you know, South Africa out of the blue. And that was really another big missed opportunity as far as I'm concerned. I like, really like to see that, um, an indictment, but at the very least that there's an effort made to, you know, ascertain what he knew and what he saw. Um, who else? Um, uh, Daniel Bostic. You know, Daniel Bostic is one of Ali Alexander's right-hand guys. Uh, there's a Ali, Sco uh, Ali scope from January 2nd where Alexander says that Daniel Bostic was the money guy for Stop the Steal. He, he, he went on a, a spiel talking about how Nathan Martin was the guy that did the plans. Um uh, it was Nathan Martin's job to do the planning for where they stayed and their flights and stuff like that. It was Daniel Bostick's job to figure out what account the money went into. And he says, it's my job to do to solicit the money. So um, it seems like he'd be, he'd probably be a good guy for them to look into. You know, there are people that uh, feel fairly confident that he was in the Willard war room uh, the afternoon of the 6th. So that's when, and then the stack, when he, when they left the lips, he took, you know, he and Kudre and uh, Megan Barth and uh, uh, Holland, Courtney Holland and others. And then a few of the Oath Keepers, you know, Bostic led his own stack to the Capitol. So that he's not, I mean, I know they, like, for example, they, uh, Alex Brusewis, 
Brusowitz, I don't know how to pronounce that right, was subpoenaed by the January 6th committee. Uh, I, I'm not sure exactly why, because he wasn't, he didn't seem to be as involved. So it seems strange to me that here's someone like Bostic takes eight or 10 of the influencers and Oath Keepers from the ellipse to the Capitol when it, they were moving the bodies, you know, the Pied Piper thing, and that he hasn't been, that I know of at least today, um, looked at at all. Now, so, when you say the, the Pied Piper thing, let's just talk about what that means for a moment. So sure. efforts to direct the mob to go where they need to go, right? Absolutely, and um, it was it was a, a full court press by most all of the influencers. You know, when you look back at say, for example, uh, Ali Alexander and Owen Troyer and Alex Jones, you know, they they were escorted out by Carolyn Wren early, and ended up on the corner, kind of by Freedom Plaza, stopped along the way to the Capitol. They, you know, they were basically. Uh, trying to rile up this crowd that was with them, the, you know, taking turns with that while they were also waiting to find out whether or not the, you know, former president was on his way um, in contact with like Caroline Wren and, and whatnot. Well, and, and by the way, they, they knew before they ever left there with that mob that they'd gotten angry. They knew that the, the, their first breaches had happened at the Capitol and that the, situation was not stable and then they continue to get people fussed and angry and take take them with them you know they they were taking the mob with them but while that was happening ellie was also tweeting to his followers telling them where to go he was texting all the other influencers in the in the group text, telling them get you know get to the capital, get the golf carts to the capital, get your people to the capital. So when I say Pied Piper, it was all about using the VIPs to direct traffic and to shoot as many angry bodies as where they needed them as possible. And you can see it when those guys got to the capital. You know, Ali was still tweeting. He's telling his, his followers, go to the Senate side. Um, um, you know, this is what you can expect. And uh, go to the Capitol on the order of SCOTUS. I mean, all this kind of stuff. Um, but then they get to the Capitol, and what do you see? You see Alex, Alex and Ali and Owen. Um, you know, they come in on the west side where it's, already very busy you know there's a lot of a lot of people there and a lot of opposition by the the, the capitol police and such and so then they they start with the okay well i got to go to the other side you know trump's going to be meeting us on the other side follow us around the capitol and uh you know so then they they go from the west side take the the group with them hundreds of people or more it's hard to know how many but it was a pretty large formation of bodies and to go around to the east side which at that point didn't have the the pack up of of supporters it was still kind of quiet at first and they were part of bringing uh, you know more force to the east side in my opinion at least 
And it wasn't just them. It was a lot of the other influencers who were doing the same thing via their social medias and whatever platforms they had. So to me, when I say Pied Piper, that's kind of just what I mean. They, they, direct, they were able to help direct the flow of bodies to where they were needed to overwhelm the Capitol Police. As well for a kind of an overall effort to encircle the Capitol. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, there's been a, well, Ali, you know, Ali and, and Michael Coudre and the others started talking about occupying the capitals. You know, I, I just re-listened to an InfoWars segment he did at the end of November, Ali, and he was already talking about occupying the capitals, shutting everything down, um, it's insane, you know, having one of his other favorites was trying to get the truckers to blockade the capitals off. I mean, way beyond, way ahead of anywhere, even close to January 6th, pushing that notion of Occupy DC, um, you know, and then there was also the 7076 plan that kind of mirrors that, but it was something that was pushed a lot, both with the state capitals and with the, um, you know, the, the D.C. Ca the Capitol building very early on. And, yeah, so that's basically a, let's get as many bodies in there as we can and then just shut that shit down because what are they going to do, right? I'm, I'm thinking that's what their thought process was, if they could just fill all the buildings and the grounds with people, then they couldn't proceed with the certification. That's just nuts. And they could certify that they're fake electors at that point, which kind of explains why. Absolutely. And and there were members of Stop the Steal involved with that. You know, there uh, you know, look at people like Mark Fincham from Arizona, who uh Trump even gave him a shout out, uh, I think it was January fourth at a Georgia rally for his efforts to to get the um you know, first the state legislature, le legislators in Arizona to, uh, you know, try to send a letter to Pence on the 5th saying, no, this is, we don't want you to, we want you to send it back to the states and all that. Um, I mean, he was deeply involved in transporting, well, he called it a book of evidence, but basically, you know, part of that were letters from you know, the Arizona legislature, but also a letter that I believe originally came or uh, started with something that Phil Klein put out where about 120 state legislators from across, you know, most of the swing states ended up signing on to that. And they were all trying to get those letters to Pence on the 5th. So um, some of their people were really deeply involved in that. Same with Pennsylvania. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, this and bless their hearts, you know, the people, it's the same people. You got the CNP and you had uh, Jeannie Thomas and her groundswell group that's something she started in 2012 with Steve Bannon, but they still meet. Um, all these same, all these same people trying to push the. I think they sent at least two letters, trying to get the legislators at the state level and then at the federal level to to you know not certify the appropriate electors. 
It's nuts. Yeah, and there's so many other, you know, uh, like inter interlocking relationships, like Josh Macias, you know, Latino for Trump and Betts for Trump. And of course, you mentioned Pension, who was also, I believe, a, not merely an keeper, but also a keeper board member. Is that right? I'm sorry, who did you say was? Uh, Fincham? Yeah, he is, uh, yes, both Oath Keeper and um, he's also involved with an organization that's called uh, Conservatives of Western States. That is basically a group of wingnuts from, you know, Washington, Idaho, Oregon, Arizona, Nevada, state legislators that like they call it the ca cows, but there's some really, you know, crazy extremist uh, people involved in that organization with Fincham, and he's the state representative for Arizona. But um, I don't know if you've ever heard of somebody named Matt Shea. He was a Washington state legislator who was literally uh, his his own legislative body uh, labeled him a domestic terrorist after his involvement with like the Bundy standoffs and things. And he was run out of the Washington State Legislature as a result of some of that. Well, he's the Washington guy for the same organization that Fincham is ahead of for in Arizona. So yeah, he's he's kind of crazy. He's involved in a lot of weird stuff. But yeah, Fincham's involved so many. You think yeah, it is odd? Like so many people are still still doing the same thing. Absolutely. Um, and then, uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but somehow he was able to get an appointment with, it was either Department of Homeland Security or SISA, um, Fincham was, to talk to him about, uh, I, I want to say he was checking, he wanted to have them, uh, he may have been one of the first shots across the bow as far as seizing voting machines with whoever it was he met with, and I can't remember which organization it was right off the top of my head. Um, but that's something that I think like maybe Politico picked up on at the time and hardly anybody else mentioned. You didn't see it in the media, but yeah, he was all over. And uh, I mean, even, and then when he decided to run for secretary of state, oh my gosh, um, he uh, had, a, had a couple gatherings at Mar-a-Lago where they did fundraisers and stuff for him because of course, of course Trump would back him. Right, I need to get I need to get all these seditionists in the Secretary of State level, but pretty crazy. And he was on he was on restricted grounds. You know, there were a lot of state legislators that were at the ellipse that ended up at the Capitol, and some of them more than others looked like they were involved in kind of overseeing aspects of what was happening on the ground at the time. Um, Trying to think of that Texas guy. Uh, is it Betterman? Biederman? Kyle Biederman? He, I, I believe that's his name. He was all over watching as things unfolded in places where he looked like he could be, at the very least, kind of on an overwatch, if not, kind of helping direct the direct things. I don't. It's hard. It's crazy. But I, none of them got rolled up. Anthony Kern. Um, and the other guy from Arizona, the guys, other le uh, legislators from Arizona. Uh, oh, and Mastriano, can't forget him. Right, and it's pretty clear, you know, that 
people bringing the buses. Apparently, that's First Amendment protected activity. They've decided, you know, they're not. Basically, the, the, the real organization, you saw what January 6th was about. It wasn't a spontaneous outpouring, it was a coordinated attack, but they've decided Absolutely. not really charging the people who did that coordination. Yeah, they, and, and honestly, I was looking at some of this stuff again recently and and because of with the, the election coming up, kind of trying to remind myself of all the parts that were in motion even a year ahead of the election with uh, organizations with lawsuits and, um, you know, uh, people that were involved in um, like the social media summit that Trump held the summer of 2019. If you look at the list of guests, a lot of those people were involved in January 6th or were at the Capitol, you know, like DC Drano, Rogan O'Hanley. He, he's another one for me as far as people that I don't understand how he hasn't been held to account. I mean, he it was at the Capitol on the 6th, but on the 5th when he went to speak at, um, at the uh, Freedom Plaza rally that, Chafian and, and Ali did, he even said he would, had just left the White House before and, he came over. But he was also, he was on restricted grounds, right? There was no... He was, he was on the East Plaza um, about quarter, 2.30, quarter to three, something like that. Um, so he, yes, he was there. And uh, I know it's been pretty well documented that he seems to have some kind of connection uh, to the, you know, at the time the Trump White House or the campaign or whatever. And I think it started with Don Jr., perhaps. I want to say it was he and Don Jr. struck up a friendship. But, you know, I can't help but wonder what the heck he was doing at the White House on the 5th of January. You know, in the evening time when all the other war room meetings and stuff are going on, it just seems weird that he just blurted that out there. And he, he was pretty, um, you know, pretty radical in some of the things that he said and the views that he shared while he spoke and then ends up at the Capitol the next day. Um, to, to date, nothing much comes from that. And now, well, even go back to 2021, O'Hanley was at uh, Bedminster, I believe it was the summer of 2021, for uh, kind of a, a faux cabinet meeting that Trump was putting together while the people were doing the Meadows biography. He was there, O'Hanley was there with... Um, trying to think of the member of Congress that was um, was there that was there used to the, was a Congress member that was in the in the wheelchair and I'm drawing a blank with his name right now that ended up getting voted out but so six months after January 6 he's in a very intimate meeting setting with the former president and a bunch of his supporters Mark Meadows and others it seems to me that he might be a good person to check in with as far as some of this stuff goes His, for what he knows or what, why he was there. Sometimes I get a vibe from him. Like he's a, like a Chesbro vibe, you know, it just seems like there were more people with a direct line into that uh, campaign or the white house 
that were on the grounds kind of overseeing things, watching things. Um, and you have to wonder if what what he was doing there at the no, time. Absolutely, that, that, that makes sense. Um, although, again, with the decision to not charge people for the restricted grounds charge, and not charge people with incitement, um, I mean, it really leaves them with conspiracy, and it looks like they've done nothing on that. No, I agree. And it is frustrating. I, I understand they can't charge everybody that was unrestricted grounds, but there were people there that obviously, you know, I say whether they were the Pied Pipers or the insiders like uh, Ivan Raiklin, he was, you know, he's seen there trying to incite people around him or, you know, even C.J. Pearson, uh, Ali's little buddy C.J., was be up on top of the uh, one of the vehicles on the east side trying to get people fired up. He was never charged. You know, Straka was charged for incitement, but there were a lot of other members from Stop the Steal and, you know, people that are, uh, you know, state state government and things like that that were there that were doing the same thing that somehow haven't been. And I can't quite figure out what sometimes what the rhyme or reason is, you know. Well, some of them were charged, right? Like, you know, uh, John Strand or Simone Gold and Adam Wildman. <laughs> They get charged, but other people who are right there with them don't. Exactly. Yeah. Um. Exactly. It does it just doesn't? There's there's like no. Um. No way to you know no rhyme or reason to how some of that went down. I guess it's frustrating, as you see it. And like you say, you know, we're we're looking at the clock now with just you know another couple of years to get some of these charges filed if they're going to file them. But the other bigger problem that we're facing is so many of these people that are integral for the year ahead of the 2020 election, you know, pushing pushing the narrative well i you know for example and i should back up for just a second you know i was talking about the social media summit and the people that were there i know for a fact that bill stepian was uh emailing influencers at least by june of 2020 because ali posted one of his emails on his twitter account Given them the the talking points and the narrative that they wanted pushed by the influencers, um, so with regard to the the, the stolen the big lie, basically. Pardon me. With regard to the big lie at that point, they had already planned that out. Yeah, some of that was already underway. There are a couple of uh, his periscopes. Ali did. At that summer where I think one of the earliest ones they found where he's already talking about stop the steal or how the Democrats are going to steal it. All of this was in uh, May or June of 2020. But one of the things I think that particular email from Stepien was uh, them saying, you know, we'd really appreciate it if you guys don't express any negative feedback right now i want to say it was right after the tulsa oklahoma rally that went so terribly around that time i don't know if you remember that or not but it was one of the one of the first rallies that trump did after covid that it was like almost empty and um i want to say it was kind of right after that and it may have had something to do with you know hey don't bash on us publicly 
all y'alls um, and, and their enthusiasm level. So um, it's just interesting. And there was a lot of other things done. You look at, um, like there was a, uh, James O'Keefe did a couple of things where he was pushing uh, a ballot harvesting myth early same time frame summer of 2020 um there was uh you know um jack Posobiec did a, a some kind of special video on antifa you know the the menace of antifa that was also in earlier in 2020 uh daniel bostic did a film with um, is it Amanda Milios? Is that how you say her name? She used to work for the State Department, maybe. Um, but it was called The Plot to Kill the President. And that was released over the summer of 2020. Um, there's just tons, there's so many things, if you look back on it now, where they, you know, um, started pushing a lot of that narrative ahead of time with the mail-in ballots and, and, there was a bunch of uh, lawsuits to try to limit those types of things and to clear the voter rolls and stuff like that. Um, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, the RNC that completely cleared the uh, primary path for Trump for the election, of course, but what that allowed them to do is um, they started to interfere in the Dem primary ahead of the election by uh, pushing what they call Operation Chaos, where um, I think it was borrowed from an old plan from you know 2008 or earlier. But basically, uh, this you know the various state party organizations in states where they have open primaries. Well, since they weren't going to have a primary for Trump, they had their RNC members vote for who they felt was the least you know, at least strong Dem candidate. And it ended up being Bernie Sanders a lot because evidently Trump really liked the idea of running against the, so with Bernie Sanders being a democratic socialist, they wanted, they really wanted him as Trump's, you know, nemesis versus like Biden. So they, you know, there was, I mean, I know for sure that it affected some of the outcomes in like New Hampshire, Ohio, Colorado, um, there's a mitt full of other states, but it's just odd because it's like the social media sum, summit happened that summer of 2019. And then from then on, it's full tilt you with every ally and group and supporter and influencer. It's like they're just throwing spaghetti at the wall. How much, <laughs> how much stuff can we throw at the wall and have it stick trying to influence both the Democratic, the Democrats primary and then the election itself. Um, it's a pretty formidable list. I keep meaning to do a full thread on it on Twitter, but, or on X, excuse me. It's just not been a priority. The website formerly known as Twitter is I like to call it. Right. Um, I, we have the mentioned uh, Kenny and Keith Lee, uh, who I believe went inside Capitol, right? Yeah, I believe I believe they did. Yeah, and they were certainly insiders. I don't know how that, you know. Again, it just doesn't make sense because they were right there with Brandon Straka. I mean, like literally right next to him, doing the same thing, or worse. Yet they don't get rolled up. It just doesn't make sense. 
No, and with their history, I mean, you would think that they would be. I mean, they're, and again, they they haven't charged a lot of these organizers, and they haven't charged insiders, and they haven't charged the Piper people. Right. Um, and it, this is an example of someone who's all of that, and they're just, you know, it's like, oh, do they have a plea agreement? I don't know. Um, I, I don't think so. Right. <laughs> For some reason, these two random guys from Texas are just untouchable. I don't know why. It doesn't make sense. And they were so, so integral to, to you know, just like the ultimate Pied Pipers with their drug. The, and when you're, when you're doing that and you're you're going through every state and you're bringing people with you in a caravan type thing, I mean, that's absolutely the ultimate Pied Piper. I know InfoWars kind of did a caravan thing like that, but I believe the Lees was much more thorough and, you know, inclusive of most of, I'm pretty sure it was, isn't it most of the southern states all the way from the uh, west coast to the east coast? Wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So. And they also, I mean, weren't the ones who came up with the 1776 rebel hashtag? Is that somebody else? Um, I'm not sure if they did or not. And there were a number of variations of that 1776 thing, so I can't say for certain on that. But. Yeah, no, I, I know they used it. I wasn't sure if they were the original. Right. I'm not sure. I, I'm not 100% positive on that. But the. <laughs> It just, I don't know. I'm just, I, I'm deeply concerned because I'm starting to see the same kind of stuff whir up across, you know, the disinformation, information warfare space online that was already started with all the reawaken tours and stuff like that. It's like the whole machinery that kicked ahead, you know, kicked up ahead of 2020 is already back in play. And we've left so many chess pieces on the board for the people that got us in trouble last time it, to me honestly if it, i would that's my bigger concern i'd love to see him get you know charged or whatever but i'm really concerned seeing the fervor and the um you know the passion behind what's going on on the right right now with all the same people that got us in trouble last time. So, I do think one of the upsides of all the prosecutions that you've seen is that you haven't seen mobs outside Fort That's true. And yeah, that, I think it had a deterrent effect. Oh, I believe you. I, I believe you 100%. I honestly wasn't sure. I mean, I didn't even know if we'd get through the inauguration after January 6th. You know what I mean? Like even with the fencing and all that that went up, it, I just didn't—you you just didn't know. I mean, it was so uncertain at that time. And there's been a lot of things since then, you know, with the Trump indictments and such, where you think, "Oh my gosh, what's going to happen?" But yeah, I agree. I think it has really had a chilling effect on on some of the more, um, you know, rabid supporters. So that's been, you know, that's been great. And it also makes a difference that they're not able to, for example, DHS put out, I believe, a lot of disinformation that really kind of stood down law enforcement. Um, and that's, you know, that's not who's in charge right now. So they are they are absolutely ready for something like that. They're yeah. not pretending like they did on January 6th. It's, it's just another day, another free speech event. Right. 
and 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 so much of the you know with him being the the executive over all those agencies nobody even if they knew it wasn't just a free speech event i don't think anybody really wanted to press the point you know him is like he's the boss so it, it's really a, a disincentive for some of the organizations even if they had an inkling and yeah, wanted, yeah, you know like angus king you know uh letting Mitt Romney yeah. know, hey, you're in danger. Yeah. And Mitt Romney is telling Mitch McConnell, and Mitch McConnell never gets back to him, doesn't reply. Mitch McConnell's like, yawn. Yeah, that was pretty, that that quote from the Romney book was pretty, um, uh, it's pretty stark. The warning was pretty stark warning. And for that to have just been, you know, f you know, fallen by the wayside is, is insane. But, uh, yeah, I, um, it's nuts. I agree that fortunately now things seem to be a little better suited. Um, I think, you know, Biden's not been the perfect president, but he's done, he's done some good things as far as an allowing the DOJ to be DOJ and not trying to, you know, put his hand in every pie or put his thumb on the scale with stuff like this. And it's allowed some of those organizations a chance to, to kind of rebuild uh, what they stood for and the people that were working for them and, and such. And so that's been a, that's been a positive for sure. But um, it looks like the, the pattern has been that sort of uh, the central mechanism for accountability for people who are not named Donald Trump appears to be Fulton County and Black right. Smith is going after Trump himself. Yeah. I, yep, and thank goodness. I mean, I he the guy seems just like you know. Have you ever heard the uh, people talking about when you drink too much tequila and they're just like bulletproof and and all that? Just that super crazy level of too much tequila. He seems like that kind of bulletproof um, driven. Rawr, superhero, maybe without the tequila, just on his own. I mean, I wouldn't want to have such a guy. I think he's he's got a sight set on on the dude, and that's how it's going to be because it has to be. And and um, you know, at least Merrick Garland did that. I I I don't know that he would have ever have had. Um, I don't know that he would ever have gone in as, you know, guns a blazing if it had been left to just Garland. You know, versus bringing in the special counsel, and well, so. Why the foregoing conclusion once he brought in the special counsel? The right. question is, why did it take so long? Um, yeah, okay. I think he felt that he couldn't do it himself, but perhaps he could have moved more quickly there. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, if uh, it seems like that that year that we lost, kind of hemming and hawing around, would be handy right now. You know, to give us a little more time to to finish scraping up you know you know rolling up some of these last people that kind of really deserve it you know but uh speaking of that and i mentioned his name earlier with with um Raiklin, have you seen all how he's um and at the, all the hearings now like seems like every time i turn on a a, a hearing with, with the house gop there's there he is in the in the peanut gallery that seems well, crazy. No, that's, yep, that's his job. Right. But how does that, I mean, how does that happen? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, this is. 
Well, he's uncharged. There's no criminal offenses. He can go wherever he likes. If it's open to the public, he can go. I guess, but it gives me the heebie-jeebies to see him reach out and shake Merrick Garland's hand. Out of here, you know, I mean, like I'm waiting for what's the other shoe, what it's going to be, and when it falls, I guess. But I suppose you're right. I just can't figure out how that is, how, how it's been that way, where he hasn't been charged. So, no, right. And that, that's true of all of them, right? I mean, um, Guy Reffitt's wife, Nicole, you know, I mean, she's been out of different events and, yeah, just, yeah. Or, or uh, the the J six corner people that show up at all the hearings, uh, Ashley yep. Beck's family and such. Yeah, so I feel really sorry. I mean, I feel badly for what happened to their daughter, but they're pointing all that anger in the wrong direction. So, but you know, um, you, you know we all knew that was going to happen as soon as um, you know the the hybrid warfare took her death and just ran with it. I found a couple of tweets from Michael Coudre, for example, with like the first one he put out was how she'd been shot, was, you know, pretty subdued. And then a couple hours later, he puts out the same thing, same video, but he's like, Capitol Police executed a Trump survivor. You know, like it just morphed into... Something insane right away. I mean, it was almost as fast as the whole Antifa did it thing that sprung up later in the afternoon. Um, and so I feel bad that that's all been weaponized, and I'm sure her family's hurting, but it's just sad to see that they're not, you know, not well, using it. Yeah, they were ready to go with Antifa did it before it even yeah, happened. I agree. Striking. Yeah, I they were ready to blame it on Antifa from the get-go and BLM. Yep, I agree wholeheartedly. Well, you know, a lot of those guys, like the the Proud Boys, that was their whole plan with the going without their colors, and they even talked about it. You know, let's not wear colors because we're all looking like Antifa. It's all out there in the open source record, and you you know, but and um, it, and it winds up being part of your an element of the conspiracy. And you wind up doing, uh, you know, a couple of decades, hopefully, in federal prison. Um, beautiful. <laughs> it, that, that was definitely a beautiful ending to that story. We just need a few more of them like that, for sure. But no, uh, um, I, uh, there was a, uh, I think that with the end, back to Antifa real quick, I know that you're right, they kind of had it all set up, but then there was also seemingly a pretty organized effort through all the influencers and stuff to to take that ball and run with it as soon as they felt the shit was going sideways. You could even yeah, looking at their deleted tweets and stuff now. Uh, but that was the best part about that. I don't know if you found that database by one distraction, but where they put together all the deleted tweets from a lot of the influencers and stuff they're just invaluable because there are a lot of them that are out there like, Hey, yes, we did it. Yo, it was not them. It was not Antifa. Right. Swinging their big, swinging their big dicks around like Nick Fuentes. (laughs) Who then later on like, okay, maybe it was Antifa. I didn't get the message. Um, So that's been a really nice resource being able to just say, Oh, wait, what, what did you say? Right. And of course, Fuentes himself, he had another chaos agent who was out there, 
you're able to do whatever he wants. Um, because he went peace circle and left. Exactly. Um, although, you know, I think he's been diminished at least some uh, over the last couple of years, especially when the whole uh, in, uh, allegations with Ali Alexander and the ped pedophile thing all blew up this last year. I think Nick Flynn has tried to defend Ali a little bit longer than maybe he you know, obviously should have, but I think that has dulled some of his shine with some of the other people that were you know, the other chaos agents i guess for lack of a better better term i can trust you to find the silver lining right i try <laughs> drives my husband crazy actually but yeah i try to um so anyways um, I'm trying to think if there's anybody else that's just burning me up right now, and and I think we we covered a lot of them. Um, as far as the VIPs and such, I really would like to see some of that pick up, but I just feel like we t like we started with, you know, going back to the Jan Six committee with letting some of those people just blow off their subpoenas and stuff. They've just remained untouched, and I don't know now whether some of them will ever get to where you know what i mean like it just it's frustrating but um it we'll is. But oh, it could know, be worse it could always I, be worse i was gonna say there is there are two more people i'd like to add to my list they weren't at, i don't think either one of them were at the capitol or the ellipse that day but i do want to add them because they're definitely sedition vips and one is um they uh, raja guy adam piper uh, who was there that did all did the the uh, robocall and such uh, for the Republican Attorney General's Association? He did like a war games and the whole thing with all the other attorney generals the, uh, the summer before the election, gaming out ways to do some of the sneaky things that they try to do. But he's a good friend of Ali Alexander's going back to like 07. And um, Newt Gingrich has not yep. been, he's not been held to account for the role he played because he platformed some pretty hinky shit during that period of time. It seems like he's trying to, trying to maybe go back and I'm just the elderly statesman role these days, but he was straight up on Team Sedition um, and worked with Ali, I know a lot, and some of the others. You know, and then getting involved with the, possibly getting involved with Flynn's uh, pardon and all kinds of stuff. So I guess I do have two more I would really like to see something happen with. That might round out my top ten. So. Great. Well, and it looks like, yeah, I mean, some of them, who knows? Maybe there's a secret grand jury in D.C. Nobody knows about. That's true. Uh, That's true. There's always, there's always that. I, honestly, I, and what I'm hoping to see, you know, I know Jack Smith really wanted to just keep it simple, stupid with his election interference case with all the unnamed conspirators. You can, I mean, he obviously was written for speed and focus, as, you know, on the big guy, but it doesn't mean that once that's over or as it progresses that he can't always go back and you know, add names to all those conspirators and start working through them. Uh, I, I believe if anybody's going to do it, it'll probably be him. He'd be the guy. 
Poor Fonny Willis. People should be uh, hopefully rather nervous. Yeah. Uh, co-conspirators. Yeah. So. Uh, agreed. All right, okay. and well, uh, we'll just keep an eye on what you got going on there. Um, and uh, you know, we need to get um, I think at Opal Cats. We need to get her in for a tag team one of these days. <laughs> Maybe not. Although with connection issues, I, I'm really having a one guest on at a time. I don't know yeah. how much I would have to do with two. Uh, I very much want to thank Jules for agreeing to come on again. Um, my first repeat guest, and uh, hopefully not the last. I may look into having some of the other guests we've had on before. Um, and also, of course, if you uh, think you might be interested and uh, have some interest in January 6th and something to say about it, um, of course, you are more than welcome. Contact me on Twitter. Uh, my DMs are actually open for the time being, and I'm still there for the time being. Um, now, I'm actually recording this before I actually have the conversation with Jules, um, in part because just the way my schedule is this week, and also because of the speed and rapidity with which all of these cases are developing. So let's go through and talk about some of the latest developments in the January 6th attack and other related cases. Now, we've had a bit of a slowdown in arrests. Um, I believe it's a... Uh, 1,070, so not as many arrests as one would hope in the last couple of weeks. Um, but again, we're finally moving on that top tier of defendants. So, you know, I, they, they can be forgiven uh, to look for looking the other way, I think, for a week or two. But uh, there are certainly many AFO defendants who are still at large, and hopefully they will prioritize those um, there are people that I've talked about before, uh, such as John Banuelos, uh, hashtag Calpoke, um, who is basically uh, someone who brought a gun to the Capitol on January 6th, um, has killed someone in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, um, and is someone who is um, unhoused, apparently, on the lam, and potentially dangerous. So, I mean, there are any number of people who probably ought to be taken off the streets and if the Justice Department isn't looking at them, they ought to be. Now, one of the questions um, that I've, I've long had on the show is the disposition of one Avery McCracken. Uh, McCracken, 69 years old, I've talked about him many times, probably don't need to go over his entire history, someone who has been in trouble with the law since the late 1990s, long, long, long arrest history, unhoused, living on the streets of mainly Telluride, but also the surrounding areas in um, was southwest Colorado, Lauren Boebert's district. And, of course, McCracken is uh, different from many other defendants in that he actually, from his Facebook page, was someone who volunteered for Lauren Boebert. And there's a picture of Boebert actually, sorry, did paid campaign work, apparently, for Lauren Boebert, because there is a picture from his Facebook page of him holding a $100 bill, standing alongside Boebert um, at what is unmistakably a campaign canvassing uh, slash signage, uh, some kind of setup area. Um, they are apparently paying people a day rate of $100, uh, one might guess from the photo. There are boxes, what look to be um, two different lines for people who are taking either cash or checks. Um, they've got one of those little uh, sort of tent 
canopy things set up. And he's there posing with Bobert in a, a set of clothing that he customarily wears because he apparently does not own many uh, sets of clothing because he is a homeless individual, unhoused individual, uh, living oftentimes out of his car in Telluride and the surrounding area. Um, talked about him at length before, don't need to rehash it uh, too much, but this is someone who somehow um, was able to fly to D.C. and stay in a hotel for several days before flying back to regional airport in Colorado, which is unusual, again, when you are a someone who is uh, a someone with a long-standing, you know, criminal record, substance abuse issues, um, and, uh, you know, is unhoused. So, you know, my speculation has always been that maybe some members of Congress brought people, right? And, you know, this is someone that Boebert had met, at least during her campaign. Maybe she knew him before, uh, from her shooter's days. Uh, apparently, McCracken was someone, something of a fixture in the community, uh, oftentimes recognized many contacts with law enforcement. Um, so, we don't know how they met. Um, but he does, apparently, at least, uh, appear in one photo with her, and I've always had my suspicions um, about how it was he got to D.C., Initially charged with the AFO, um, in the original documents, there's a picture of a officer uh, who has an indentation on his face, uh, and it appears to, to match rather closely a ring that McCracken appears to always wear. Um, but this was, I guess, debunked by the DOJ, or slash uh, disavowed. They decided to go with other charges against him, um, and they had sent him back to Colorado for some reason. Uh, I believe it was uh, drug and alcohol uh, abuse treatment of some sort. Uh, it's not actually in the court record. We don't really know. Um, in any event, he was at a facility somewhere in Colorado. They brought him back to D.C. Finally, for a plea hearing. So McCracken has pleaded guilty now for one, to one felony count of obstruction of law enforcement officers uh, in civil disorder. And I've been to his court listener page, and it, it's very short. His uh, documentation on this is very short. So I would be curious to know if perhaps we'll be hearing more about the McCracken case uh, later on, or if this is it, and this is the end of it. Turns out there's no connection to Boebert whatsoever, and he's just another person who was uh, violent and pushing and shoving and possibly fighting with police in other ways on January 6th. So, given that I've talked about him so many times, uh, once again, this is one of those older cases that has finally culminated in a plea agreement. Um, another development, of course, we've had a whole series of plea deals. Now, last time I talked about Scott Hall, right, the bail bondsman who uh, took a plea deal in Fulton, the Fulton County case with regard to the Coffee County data breach. This was, of course, the uh, unauthorized access and theft of information from Dominion voting machines uh, to include voter records. Um, Hall pleaded in that case, and that, you know, what it, it would be hard to say that these aren't related, um, but... You know, you had this first tranche of cases where they were coming up to the trial date. And, of course, it was Sidney Powell and Kim Chesbro, um, 
cheese bro. I know the cheese stands alone. Uh cheese bro from Wisconsin. I'm going. I'm going to call him Chess bro. Uh, might as well stop making that joke. It gets old after a while. Um, and of course, last week you had Sidney Powell uh, reaching a plea agreement one day, uh, six misdemeanors, and then you had um, Chesbro, uh basically on the the first day uh, would have been of I believe jury selection is trial. He pleads out to, and he pleaded to one felony count of a conspiracy to file false documents. And then on uh, Tuesday, um, basically, actually, I'm recording this on Tuesday, uh, Jenna Ellis, another Trump attorney, pleaded to one felony count of aiding and abetting false statements. Now, I had this was all very much a surprise to me. Not so much the whole plea. Um, I had expected that some of the, quote, little fish would plea. Um, but I had seen Chesbro and Powell is very much ideologically committed to Trump. Um, but again, it makes sense. Now, you look at someone like Stuart Rhodes. You know, why did he go all the way uh, and, you know, going so far as to take the stand, which I'm sure his attorneys advised him not to do. You know, a lot of these really ideologically committed defendants, they want their day in court. They want to get vindicated. Or they at least want to put on a show. And so that is why you see so many of them going to trial at a rate that is 10 times higher than in the federal court system as a whole for criminal defendants. Something like 20% of these defendants are going to trial. So surprising that these two people, who are very much ideologically committed, decided to go early and then take a plea. Obviously, there's a lot of speculation about why they would go, want to go early. I had thought that, especially Chesbro, was kind of offering himself as tribute. It was Chesbro who, at first, stood alone and offered uh, basically to, you know, not waive his speedy trial rights and go first. Um, and then Powell sort of joined him in that, uh, even though their cases are not immediately related, although uh, there are so, both of them are connect connected to so many other people that it would not surprise me that there's actually a link that I just haven't found yet. Now, it, it is it is curious, because I thought that the main advantage for Chesbro was actually to uh, basically assist Trump's legal team, in that what he would do is go first, and then, you know, he had this argument, I'm just a lawyer, I was just arguing on behalf of my client, um... And he was going to make this, various people regarded this uh, rather seriously. I think Ben Wittes uh, had some comments uh, to that effect that it's not an open and shut case. Well, apparently Chesbro did not put much stock in that argument. Um, and I wonder if the identification of Chesbro, um, now some time ago, nonetheless, the identification of Chesbro having shadowed Alex Jones uh, on January 6th around the Capitol as Alex Jones led the mob to different places around the Capitol. I do wonder if that identification had something to do with it. I still regard this as quite possibly the most significant identification in the entire January 6th series of cases, because he is the architect of the um, fake elector scheme. And the fake elector scheme, arguably, uh, was kind of the progenitor 
of the need to delay certification and all that. It's precisely to get these slates of fake electors certified by Congress that they come up with this plan to occupy the Capitol and perhaps even to take hostages uh, in order to get these Trump fake electors uh, approved, right? And to, so that, to obstruct the peaceful transfer of power. And so, again... He has an office in Cambridge, Massachusetts. If he were just an attorney, he would have been there. He wouldn't have been with Alex Jones. So, highly significant. And, of course, Jenna Ellis, who, by the way, um, at least Chesbro, Chesbro was not one of the big social media guys. He was, he, he, you know, not someone who's making, like, comment after comment after comment all day. And Jenna Ellis is the opposite of that. She's still shitposting, right? She's still, you know, trying to own the libs, um, even after her plea deal. Uh, it's, it's actually really remarkable. I mean, there's no, there's contrition that she demonstrated in court when she, uh, admitted the, her wrongdoing. And she cried, right? She squirted some. So, again, this is someone with long-standing ties to Trump. Uh, this is not someone who he's going to be able to do the coffee boy routine on. Um, apparently, though, you know, someone who's mainly, if you look at the documents and, and everything else, she was someone who was regarded by others as a bit of a joke uh, with regard to her abilities as an attorney. Nonetheless, someone who was kind of on the PR side, um, working as, as a spokesman mainly for uh, other elements of the Trump legal team. So it's fitting that ultimately she winds up pleading on this false statements charge uh, where basically she's mounting this propaganda campaign to spread lies that the 2020 presidential election was stolen. Now, one of the things that I had hoped to learn from the uh, early this early trial that was to have taken place on Friday of last week was what happened at Linwood's Tomatley Plantation. Um, you'll recall, of course, this was uh, basically something that was set up. They decided they needed a place to orchestrate the conspiracy. And I've long suspected that they have had someone on the inside um, because they appeared in, in their questioning to have information that I didn't know where they got. Um, and I, I, we still don't know who that person is. There's been speculation that's Lynn Wood. Lynn Wood has denied this. Um, nonetheless, it, it does appear that just from reading some of the transcripts from the people who were there and some of the questions that were asked, that there were a fair number of conspirators and conspirator-adjacent people and unindicted co-conspirators who were working out of Tomatley Plantation and moving in and out. And uh, talk about some of that um, as we go on. But, um, again, you know, this is something that we, we do not know a lot about, but I believe it's a, it's a key location. You know, we talk about the, the war room at the Willard, the war room at Trump, uh, the Trump Hope property in D.C., and, you know, this was kind of a war room that was set up for the disinformation campaign slash, um, you know, election interference campaign slash election fraud campaign uh, that was happening in the post-election pre-January 6th period. So probably the when you look at the committee transcripts, um, the best witness we have on record from the committee anyway, uh, and again on record, they may have other testimony that we don't know about, uh, was Patrick Byrne, 
who was, of course, the Overstock CEO, former Overstock CEO, uh, who was there at Motley and was also one of the members of Team Crazy in that December 18th late night meeting that was the thing that immediately precipitated the will be wild tweet uh, that summoned the mob to the Capitol that Trump did in the early morning hours of uh, December 19th, 2020. So, there are certain questions that the committee always asked, again, uh, you know, that made me wonder if there was another off-the-record witness, um, because they seem pretty well informed on the goings-on at Tamatli Plantation. Anyway, I'd like to read uh, just quickly from Burns' testimony, his transcript, pages 30 and 31. I guess we're going to have to wait some time, um, but there is a section in here that I've always been curious about. Uh, Byrne mentions that Powell brought some junior, junior lawyers with her. And I don't know who these people are. Um, they've always been kind of my dark horse guess at one of those surprise to Motley witnesses. All right. Launch into the transcript. Question. Okay. At some point, did you go down to Tamatley in November of 2020? Answer. Yes. Question. Who was down there when you went there? Who was down there, you know, working from there in that time frame? Answer. Well, I went down, first of all, to basically take the top of this funnel that I've described to you and move it so it poured down into Tamatli. And there were a group of, there was Linwood and a group of lawyers gathering. They were basically Sydney and her junior, junior lawyers. And Linwood had two or three staff. And then there was there was protection, and then there were people with some undefined, uh, and I just got kind of question marks there because it looks like maybe he trailed off and uh, the transcript uh, doesn't get it. There was uh, Gina Faddis and a fellow that I didn't take too much. Um, I discussed in the book uh, the guy who, he was a British fellow, allegedly with some connection to the SAS. Um transcription includes a question mark there, so uh, apparently he, you know, asked this in form of a question. Question. Was Mike Flynn there? Answer. No, not when we got there. Question. Did he come down later? Answer. I was there for a couple of days and then he came down and I left and we met on the tarmac and chatted for 30 minutes. 30 to 31. Right, so you've got the whole team, basically, right? You know, it's Sidney Powell, it's Mike Flynn, uh, it's Patrick Byrne uh, conspiring there on Linwood's plantation. And by the way, there's only one kind of person who owns a plantation, right? I mean, let's just, you know, this is not someone who's, you, yes, there's the cachet, I suppose, of history, but, you know, this is a place where generations of people were enslaved, you know, um, not surprising that the, you know, the, cornerstone of this conspiracy is, you know, people plotting uh, in this kind of venue, you know. I mean, this is not something that Linwood inherited. He bought a plantation on purpose with everything, you know, that that entails, former rice plantation uh, worked by enslaved people. All right, here's uh, another excerpt. Question. So you've mentioned Garrett Ziegler a couple of times, and each time you said something about you didn't realize something, and then your voice sort of trailed off and you didn't finish the thought. So I'm wondering, was there some aspect of Ziegler's involvement that you came to learn later that you didn't understand at the time? 
Uh, again, this is Patrick Byrne speaking. Answer. When Peter Navarro came out with his report is when I started realizing, oh, Garrett is acting as a conduit of information from the different people he's talking to. Because in the report, I saw a bunch of different, the work of other of these camps. And so I guess I had assumed that Peter Navarro and they were doing, I assumed they were in the bowels of government. They were people doing what we were doing. And that's what was in Navarro's report. But I saw some things in it that made me realize, oh, this is, he's looking at other people's work and he's, you know. Question. My understanding, I know you said you didn't spend too much time at the Westin. My understanding was that Ziegler had his day job in the White House and when he would come late at night frequently to the Westin. Uh, that last part was, was burn again. Answer. My understanding was that Ziegler had his day job in the White House and then he would come late at night quite frequently to the Westin. Uh, another hub of this uh, element of the conspiracy. So, again, I, I mentioned this, you know, and this is one of those where you're reading transcripts and uh, things come up and, um, you know. Ziegler, another person of, of great interest, um, and he was apparently, in the Navarro Report, synthesizing a lot of the work that had been done by some of these other teams. Um, that's actually a very good description, I believe, of what he wound up doing, sort of basically plagiarizing their work. Um, if you've looked at some of the work that he's done with his, quote, Marco Polo group, LLC, incorporated out of a agent's office in uh, Wyoming, Sheridan, Wyoming, um, you know, that's kind of what he does. This is his bag, um, and it's, you know, it's, He's got a, a pretty unique style once you uh, recognize how he writes. Uh, in any event, of course, he's currently, again, obsessed with Hunter Biden's laptop. And I would have thought that he also is someone who, you know, is too ideologically motivated to uh, accept a plea deal. Um, but now I'm not so sure, right? Uh, people like Chesbro and Powell pleading. Uh, and, of course, Jenna Ellis uh, who, again, you know, I mean, fully committed Trumpist, right? Fully committed, homeschooled, far-right extremist, um, you know, anti-LGBTQ, all everything that goes with it. Um, these are not the kind of people who I thought would be necessarily taking plea deals. Uh, I would figure they would go the Stuart Rose route, and yet it looks like, you know, Fonnie Willis is batting a thousand. Um, so someone like Ziegler, you know, maybe, maybe he will wind up pleading because he's someone who did a lot of stuff and uh, presumably could benefit from some kind of cooperation agreement um, because he knows an awful lot of stuff. You know, he's kind of like the anti-Cassidy Hutchinson, basically, at this point. So we don't know, you know if he's going to take the Stuart Rose route and also tough it out and get a maximum amount of time. But it's interesting to get um, Burns' take on it because he apparently, according to his transcript, originally thought that like he was, quote, some sort of social contact. He didn't necessarily realize that he was working with and slash for Peter Navarro and didn't realize uh, the full extent of what Ziegler was actually doing and what his role in the conspiracy was. And there's still some question about whether or not Ziegler himself actually went uh, down to, um, to Motley. Now, they do ask him about that in his transcript, but of course Ziegler took the fifth to uh, just about every question that uh, he was answered, that he had uh, posed to him. So, you know, 
Still not sure, but he was definitely in contact with those people. Um, I think that what the, the familiarity that Byrne shows with him implies to me anyway that Byrne and Ziegler were there at Tomatle at the same time, although we do not have any firm evidence of that at all, other than the fact that they ask him, you know, you can you make your draw your own conclusions. And just as an aside, uh, I didn't realize this until I was actually doing some other work looking into Ziegler, um, but apparently he admitted or said on some podcast somewhere that he, in fact, is actually um, the nephew or, like, a cousin, I'm not sure the exact relationship, of Ron Ziegler, who is Nixon's press secretary, which I find fascinating, right? Okay, so nepotism uh, apparently works down to generations. Um, and you look at the two of them, I've posted on my Twitter feed, like, you know, you put them side by side, this is a very strong family resemblance. Um, so kind of interesting. Roger Stone isn't the only link between Watergate and uh, the the January 6th attack. Um, there are all kinds of things, you know, that kind of rhyme with one another, right? You know, uh, talked about the CNP. We've talked about um, the MRC uh, and Elbrant Bozell, uh, you know, who, of course, comes from, you know, far right. Uh, kind of, I also want to say royalty um, in terms of that family and, uh, you know, both sides of, of his parentage. And coincidentally, um, Ed Martin, who uh, is basically the person who inherited Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, the Eagle Forum, that organization, um, uh, just kind of a coincidence that one of the Watergate burglars when he was arrested, actually used Ed Martin as a uh, as an alias. Of course, a very common name. I don't know that he actually in any way was thinking of the actual Ed Martin at that point. Um, but odd coincidence. I, I keep looking for these links, odd links between Watergate and this. Uh, although, again, this is obviously January 6th, bigger than Watergate. All right. I want to turn um, for a while to Powell's status uh, on on the Trump team, um, because I'm kind of coming to look at Powell's role in a lot of this. I haven't covered her all, all that much, uh, in part because her transcript is kind of all over the place. Uh, unlike a lot of other defendants, though, she doesn't uh, she she gives answers, but she's one of those unreliable narrators. In that, you know, is she crazy? Um, you know, I mean, you know, the things she believes, uh, some of them sound, uh, really, really odd. And so maybe, a, uh, an unreliable narrator, um, the way I've come to regard a lot of these people is that I, I treat a lot of their theories, uh, the theories as very, uh, kind of, you know, un unreliable, but generally speaking, uh, when it comes down to, you know, looking at the facts, right? I was at this location, you know, I met with so-and-so. That tends to be more reliable, even when you're dealing with one of these unreliable narrators, and I'll talk about one of those in a moment. Um, but again, this is why I came to look at Byrne. In particular, he's the best narrator that we have on the record with regard to what happened so far at Tamatley, and he winds up mentioning Powell. Quote, and then, and then the situation with Sidney Powell, oh, sorry, uh, actually, um, this is actually from Giuliani's transcript. So, in any event, I made the turn from uh, Byrne 
to another member of this the, the little organization, Sidney Powell, and uh, there have been questions about whether or not you know she was actually his attorney, Trump's attorney, and of course, um, you know he's denied it. She's also getting the coffee boy treatment, which is kind of incredible. There was a, a public kerfuffle uh, in I believe it was November of 2020 where uh, Powell was basically kind of booted off the team, but not really. And I'll discuss that uh, here with this excerpt from Giuliani's transcript. Answer, and this this is regarding her status on the quote the team, the Trump team, and then, and then the situation with Sidney Powell was is somewhat confused. She was not a member of the of the team that was put out by the White House as the team representing him, and I can describe what she did. Question: We'll talk about Mrs. Powell. Ms. Powell, answer. I can't describe what she said because it's privileged, but I can describe the somewhat unusual nature of her connection to the team. So that's from Giuliani's uh, transcript, page 24. So according to Rudy, uh, she was not on the team as an attorney, but somehow attorney-client privilege applies because apparently she had some kind of independent relationship as an attorney with Trump himself. Huh, okay. On page 26, uh, Giuliani claims that he was introduced to Phil Waldron, uh, another Powell-affiliated to Motley plotter by Powell. Quote, yeah, I think it was probably Sidney, but I'm, I'm not 100% positive of that. Again, Giuliani, oftentimes drunk. Uh, on page 39, there's something interesting in Giuliani's transcript. Giuliani is asked about a meeting with Powell and Phil Waldron in Mark Meadows' office on December 21st, 2020, and his attorney, Mr. Costello, Giuliani's attorney, has some private time with Giuliani. He interrupts and says, hey, wait, uh, we need to talk about this, and so they confer off the record. When the transcript jumps back, Giuliani says that he doesn't recall the meeting, but uh, if that meeting happened, uh, by the way, it, it would be privileged. Um, so Giuliani getting, I guess, some good legal advice uh, from his counsel. Um, but, you know, again, if there's more news about Mark Meadows, you know, we'll hear some, something perhaps about that. On page 168 of Giuliani's transcript, question. Are you aware of efforts made by Sidney Powell to get presidential authority to seize voting machines based on a claim of foreign interference? Answer. Can I just discuss this with Bob? This is a very sensitive, very sensitive issue. They confer, uh, Bob Costello and Giuliani. Giuliani comes back to say he can't discuss most of this conversation, uh, what he talked about with Powell, but with regard to the December 18th meeting, it's not privileged, right? Because there's non-attorneys there. And Giuliani also contradicts himself. Quote, I would have to assert attorney-client privilege as to any other conversations with Sidney Powell since she was pre the president's lawyer during the period of time that I had the communications with her. And then, quote, Okay, technically, I don't know if she was part of our team or not, but she certainly was his lawyer. Page 170, end quote. So, again, not on the team, but also apparently somehow Trump's lawyer is right there in Giuliani's transcript, page 170. He says that Sidney Powell was Trump's lawyer.
Um, of course, you know, again, is there a retention letter? Eh. Uh, were there payments? No. But the, this is how Trump operates. And I really wish that they would follow up on this because this is what he's been doing with all these attorneys. He's having them do legal work for him so he can claim attorney-client privilege and yet also uh, when they, or if they flip, uh, he can say, well, they weren't my attorneys. See, there's, there's you know, um, there's no letter. Uh, there's nothing proving that they were my attorney. And this is a setup he's got with uh, Sidney Powell, John Eastman, and God knows how many other attorneys uh, who were doing work for him, uh, even though they may not have officially been uh, retained as a member of his team. But when Giuliani recounts the December 18th meeting, um, he says that Team Crazy wanted Trump to sign a document that would, quote, allow the president to seize voting machines, page 172. Uh, this, of course, you know, well-documented part of the scheme, right? They wanted uh, the president to use the military to seize voting machines. And Giuliani claims that he recalls nothing about talk of Powell being appointed special counsel at this meeting and says, quote, I can't imagine there was because I probably would have gone crazy if I had heard that. I would have said, you've got to be out of your mind, page 177. Um, and you know what? Many of his memory I mean, problems you, you might associate with uh, alcohol abuse um, or, you know, it could well be. I mean, the... the the December 18th meeting, they did at some point break up in, into different groups. And so, hard to say. But again, Giuliani, yet another unreliable narrator. Now, they also showed Giuliani an email uh, regarding the Georgia voting machine scheme that uh, he was CC'd on. Of course, again, this is the Coffee County breach. And Giuliani was CC'd in an email regarding this, these efforts. Question. All she says is, Georgia Machine Access promised a meeting Friday night to happen Sunday that has not come through. So, no explanation as to what was actually, how it was supposed to happen, or I was thinking that might prompt a memory to you. Again, to Giuliani. Answer. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't. But, I mean, we did. I mean, the only thing that it does do is... We did try to get access to Georgia machines with limited success. By that time, this was, that was over. That was in the past, page 181. Well, Rudy, it may be in the past, but of course, uh, there are consequences being imposed on, to, on people now. Uh, you've had Scott Hall and uh, now Sidney Powell plead in relation to this. And, of course, in his transcript, he basically admits uh, some knowledge, at least, that we've got at least one email that he was CC'd on from Sidney Powell discussing the promise of access, illegal access, to uh, Dominion voting machines in Coffee County, Tech, uh, Georgia, excuse me, and um, him admitting knowledge of this, and then, you know, kind of making an unforced error and talking about, uh, oh, yeah, well, we got access. Okay, then you you were in on it. You do know about it. Who is the we? It's you working together in concert with Sidney Powell, uh, who is now going to be able to offer evidence against Giuliani, certainly in Fulton County, and also uh, perhaps one would imagine everyone who is flipping in Georgia is going to get a call, right? Um, you know, Jack Smith is probably keenly interested in these potential witnesses, and, you know, may, there may not be 
close coordination between uh, what's happening with uh, Willis's office in Fulton County and the DOJ. Nonetheless, uh, these developments are highly significant also for the federal case uh, before Judge Chutkin. All right. Uh, I will now uh, go to the Alex Cannon transcript and uh, his April 13th, 2022 interview. Um, again, looking at this this whole question of Sidney Powell and her role in the conspiracy. So basically what I've done is to just go through a whole slew of these transcripts um, and find everywhere where Powell's mentioned. Um, and Cannon talks about her a, a little bit in his so the staff asked Cannon about the claims made by Rudy, uh, Powell, and others dating from mid-November, quote, regarding Dominion voting machines and foreign influence. And Cannon characterizes these as, quote, very outlandish, page 37. So again, this is another example of Cannon, Alex Cannon, uh, positioning himself as a member of Team Normal. In authoritarian systems, of course, all politics is reduced to palace politics, um, and I'm sure to some extent that these representations of there being different factions where you've got Giuliani and his team, you've got Powell, and you've got Alex Cannon, uh, all of these things, you know, that's probably true to some extent. They all then asked Cannon about a conversation that Cannon had had with Hirschman on the subject of uh, Powell and Giuliani and these uh, theories about Dominion, and Cannon replies, quote, The conversations weren't that direct. It was more, it's absurd to think that it goes to Hugo Chavez, hacks the election, or the ring machines or Italian satellites. Like, what theory is it? It was conversations like that. Page 38. And that would have been interesting, just to, to hear, especially Hirschman, talking about this kind of stuff. Um, even though, again... He is uh, another person who is uh, pretty self-serving in all this. So that's from page 38. And on page 39, Cannon claims that he had no conversations with Powell or any other, quote, outside attorneys regarding the question of, quote, fraud detection programs. And this I can believe, right? Because uh, this, of course, Cannon had been kicked off the, the litigation team, replaced by Giuliani and uh, his crew of assorted, uh, his motley assorted crew of kooks and cranks. All right, so again, underlying the significance to Powell in all these transcripts, you can look, you know, what significance is this? Well, you know, Scott Hall gave us Sidney Powell, right? Probably to some extent her decision to enter a plea was reached by the fact that he had dead to rights on the election charges, uh, the election interference charges, um, and, you know, on things like theft, right? So, you know, she got a good deal because she went right in uh, through the door that he opened and realized that he was going to testify against her and that her window was a very narrow one, uh, one might believe. So, again, I've gone through a lot of these transcripts just looking for mentions of Powell because there's so many parts of this conspiracy that she can testify to, things that she knows about. And by the way, there are other parts where people know things about her, um, which is kind of interesting. And this next one is one of those. 
Uh, this is with regard to fake electors Jim DeGraffenried and Sean Meehan of Nevada. They exchanged some interesting uh, text messages that the committee has, and Powell is mentioned in this context. So, sorry, I'm not sure if it's email exchange or text message. I believe, uh, look at the photo, it looks like uh, text messages. Um, quote, Trump got Lynn Wood and Sidney Kraken Powell, but the convention of snakes attorney Jenna Ellis is too busy <laughs> pushing her God tweets to actually push legal standard evidence to appropriate courts and get a win. And I don't know what Mayor R.G. Giuliani is up to. We got evidence, we know it, but Trump has the wrong attorneys pretending to actually fight for this. End quote. So, again, co-conspirators in the, the Nevada case uh, who are looking on the outside at, you know, Powell, Giuliani, uh, Linwood, and being like, what is going on here? But, you know, again, the evidence isn't real, right? And so they're trying to manufacture evidence, and they're claiming, well, we've got really good evidence. They don't. There isn't any good evidence because it didn't happen. Um, but nonetheless, all these different people think that the cases that other parts of the conspiracy are making are full of it, when in actuality, of course, the whole conspiracy is full of it. They're trying to manufacture uh, evidence when none exists, because what they're alleging did not actually occur. All right, let's talk a while about Kelly Sorrell. Uh, now, I know I've mentioned her quite a bit. Um, she figures quite prominently in the Vallejo discovery material, that is to say that surreptitiously recorded conversation in a, a go-to meeting or Zoom meeting of the Oath Keepers. And um, she, of course, is someone who was used quite a bit by Stuart Rhodes. Now, you'll remember, of course, she played this official role as general counsel of the Oath Keepers, but it was also Stuart Rhodes' girlfriend, uh, a former Texas State House candidate, and, of course, also an attorney. Um, rather infamously, of course, Sorrell was an attendee at the meeting on January 5th between Enrico Terrio of the Proud Boys, Bianca Gracia of Latinos for Trump, Josh Macia of Vets for Trump, and also Latinos for Trump, uh, and, of course, Stuart Rhodes himself, uh, president of the Oath Keepers. The garage meeting, of course, which everyone uh, who's listening to this podcast is probably well familiar with. Now, it seems, uh, looking at Sorrell's transcript um, and everything else, of course, yeah, the Vallejo material, Oath Keepers trial, we've been through all that before. Um, Rose was using her as a conduit to for contacts with other groups. And, of course, this is for the same reason that Trump was using uh, all of his attorneys to commit crimes and conduct a conspiracy, the expectation of attorney-client privilege would mean that their conspiracy would be somehow be unchargeable because they can't get anything because there's this layer of attorney-client privilege that Rudy Giuliani, you know, continually references. All, they all think that attorney-client privilege is just always going to shield them. Um, you know, ask Michael Cohen how that works. Um... A little little bit of background on Sorrell's case now, of course, as I believe I've mentioned. As it currently stands, Sorrell has been found not competent to assist counsel in her own defense. Um, I've talked about competency and sanity before. She's not mounting an insanity defense. Um, the court has ruled that Sorrell is not competent to assist, assist counsel. And so she has been ordered to into competency restoration uh, on an inpatient basis at a BOP facility. 
according to a status report filed on October 12th of this year. Sorrell's scheduled to report for her competency restoration to a BOP facility in late November. So it's kind of weird, like, I know, I know I'm meant to focus on Powell, um, a lot of these issues wind up com- devolving into tangential issues because I realize that th- stuff has happened that I actually haven't covered in the podcast. Um, I've mentioned on the show before, and, uh, you know, of course, i do it right here. Sorrell is nuttier than a payday bar dipped in peanut butter, um, but from the standpoint of the courts... I have no doubt that she is going to get restored to competency. Um, in fact, I, I think it's a bit of a red herring. I, I don't think that she ought to have been found incompetent to begin with. This may have been something that was done and pursued uh, to address the issue of an appeal on that basis. Um, there is no doubt, of course, Kelly Sorrell believes some stuff that we might say is crazy, but in a legal sense, she's not incompetent. She is an actual attorney, and the legal bar for being incompetent um, to assist is, you know, a bit high, right? Uh, sorry. <laughs> so it's like you, you really, as, as Judge Maida mentioned, this is usually people who are not on the streets. These are usually people who are in pretrial detention. That's the, the level of, you know, sort of chronic mental illness that the kinds of people who are incompetent uh, to assist counsel demonstrate. And you can read her transcript, and you can compare it to similar transcripts from other January 6th witnesses. She didn't come off, to my mind, as incompetent. Uh, if anything, in many respects, she gives a, a more fulsome accounting of events than many other witnesses. Don't know this because she's mentally ill. Um, and, you know, she does arrive at some odd conclusions. Some things that say seem dubious to me. But again, no more so than at least 85% of these defendants uh, who, you know, this is, this is a movement composed of people who have lost connection on some level with reality. So uh, one of the things that, that I did wind up calling, although I don't know if I've actually discussed this in the podcast, is that Judge Maida in these proceedings was determined to set up a competency restoration program for Sorrell that would somehow be done on an outpatient basis. That's not a thing. Um, he said that you know he, this was the first time he's ever dealt with someone who was not currently incarcerated in pretrial detention. In other words, who uh, was found to be not competent, and because of liberty concerns, he really wanted to be able to restore her to competency uh, on an outpatient basis without putting her in BOP custody. Now, for to my mind, yeah, that's kind of a red flag to begin with. If Kelly Sorrell is okay to be walking around in the community, then she's probably capable of assisting her attorney. I mean, indeed, as an actual attorney, she's probably more competent than many of these other people who are educationally challenged and believe the kinds of same sort of disordered things that she does. Um, In any event, outpatient competency restoration that's just not a thing. There's no such thing in the federal system. The only competency restoration programs uh, that are really used in federal court are conducted on an inpatient basis in the Bureau of Prisons. So with regard to the competency restoration process itself, it's complicated. I will link to BOP policy in the show notes because I'm not really competent to understand it, uh, or that would actually be a multi-hour podcast in and of itself. But The thing to know, of course, is that the vast majority of defendants are restored to competency for trial, 
And this, by the way, is a population that, almost by definition, includes the chronically mentally ill, which, uh, you know, her statements and life choices notwithstanding, Sorrell probably is not chronically mentally ill. Um, now, again, I'm not competent to, to actually find that. I'm not qualified. But I don't think it's correct to find her incompetent in the first place, unless the government has some information that I don't have, such as privacy-protected information about prior inpatient mental health commitments that she's received or other documented diagnoses or medications that aren't part of the public court record and never will be. So, I'm sorry for this long preamble, but it's a good reminder for me to actually revisit Sorrell because uh, she's going to be going to trial sometime next year, assuming that she is restored to competency. Anyway, in her committee testimony of April 13th, 2022, Sorrell testifies quite a bit about Sidney Powell. And it is kind of odd here. We have one attorney who's been found incompetent testifying about another attorney who's admitted to conspiring to commit election interference. Um, Sorrell's transcript is 229 pages long, and she mentions Powell many times, so I'm, I'm going to summarize. Uh, there will be some quotes, but I'm, I'm going to summarize a bit. Sorrell was absolutely convinced, convinced, of course, that the fix was in in 2020, and that Biden's victory was somehow the result of massive fraud, but at the same time, she also recognized that Powell's theories regarding how this fraud was perpetrated were such obvious bullshit that she couldn't credit them. And so she's willing to believe some of the witnesses who are testifying to massive fraud, but saw that Powell's claims were, uh, you know, again, just nonsensical. And so what Powell does, what, sorry, what Sorrell does is to construct this elaborate theory wherein Mike Flynn and Sidney Powell are somehow bad actors who are only seeming to support Trump while actually undermining Trump with these nonsensical claims, um, while Trump himself is an innocent victim. I get really strange, right? So, you, you know, she knows there's a, this massive conspiracy. She's part of it. Um, but she sees some of the other people in the, bat, in the conspiracy as, uh, you know, somehow being on the wrong side because she doesn't like the way they're conspiring and the, the fact that they are making representations that seem to her to be disordered. Um, which, again, interesting because she herself has now been judged to be not competent to assist in her own defense, uh, her status as an attorney notwithstanding. So I can understand, of course, why the court found her incompetent on some level, um, but I recognize what she's doing here, right? This is an avoidance of cognitive dissonance. Like many, many other MAGA cultists, Sorrell really couldn't accept that Trump lost, but she at least was smart enough to realize that what Powell was peddling was nonsense. So to my mind, this actually shows that on some level, she's more clever than the, the average MAGA cultist. This is actually a, a higher level of functioning than what a lot of them have uh, with regard to this avoidance of cognitive dissonance. And so with regard to certain other facts, I think Sorrell is spot on. She actually is a good observer, and she has first-hand testimony to offer that she's developed as a consequence of all the work that she did as a conduit for Stuart Rhodes as part of, you know, her part of the conspiracy, which hopefully we'll learn more about 
assuming she ever is found competent to uh, assist in her defense at trial. Now, in response to a question about the continued role of Rhodes at the Oath Keepers and how it came to pass that Sidney Powell uh, funded Rhodes's legal defense, uh, Sorrell had this to say, quote, I told him pretty much after he got arrested and the first time I met with his attorneys in Dallas that I did not agree and that I thought they were all conflicted because I did not think that Sidney Powell had any business funding anything, considering I thought she was a major key factor in actually planning and orchestrating the event. And I had concerns with her funding defense for any of the Oath Keepers, actually, including Scott Mosley, and I was very vocal about that. And I basically told him that if this was the route he was going to go, I was not going to get ensnared in any of their bullshit, because I've not done that so far, and I refuse to do it now. Sorry. Question. Got it. Do you have a sense of why Sidney Powell would be funding the Oath Keepers' defense? Answer. Yeah. You want to control the money and control, make sure that, I mean, here's the thing. It's unethical as hell, but the reality is, I think that she's trying to find counsel that will be more interested in keeping their income flowing than actually doing their job. Question. Got it. Answer. That's my opinion. Page 15. Now, what's interesting, actually, with regard to the attorneys, uh, his Dallas attorneys, they actually seem pretty good uh, in comparison to some of the uh, attorneys, in my opinion, having followed the Oath Keepers case closely, uh, Linder and Bright, uh, the, the Dallas attorneys um, for uh, Stuart Rhodes, actually seemed more normal than a lot of the people who have represented high-level clients in uh, these cases. Um, of course, later on, by the way, they do wind up bringing in uh, another attorney, um, but, you know, Sorrell apparently doesn't think that they're they're the right attorneys for him. But again, you know, um, yeah, she didn't have to, uh, you know, play a role in that. But obviously, again, uh, we're, when we're talking about uh, Sidney Powell, we should remember she was someone who um, funded the attorneys who represented Stuart Rhodes. So while we're focused on a lot of other parts, Coffee County and some other stuff, that's yet another connection to one of the major groups on the ground on January 6th. Now, again, she's got this elaborate theory about Powell and Flynn and some of the other people she sees as bad actors. And so she has this, uh, she talks about General Flynn, Mike Flynn, and the First Amendment Praetorians. Question. So General Flynn with Mr. Inlow, I guess, what's that relationship? Answer. It's not just Mr. Inlow. You basically end up, at every event that General Flynn's got, you've got the First Amendment Praetorians. You basically end up with Stacey Burke. If you talk to her, you understand that it was the First Amendment Praetorians that was acting at the direction of, Tr of Flynn. That's what this turns out to be. Flynn is the one coordinating. Bianca, after that. So... I'm watching that Flynn is the one coordinating and then transitioning into like a giant speaking thing and all of that stuff. That's reawakened America tour. I end up excluding myself from all of that because I have already concluded that I believe that Sidney Powell really screwed up and it was intentional because nothing was matching. So anything I could tie to Sidney Powell at that point, 
I knew was not something I was touching with a ten-foot pole. And since I knew Flynn and Sidney Powell were close, then I started realizing the First Amendment Praetorians was close to them. So by that November rally in Atlanta, I was already starting to go like, okay, this is weird. This is all like one giant bubble, right? With factions, but one giant bubble. And here's our major ringleaders, pages 68 and 69. So again, um, not crazy, but that's yet another relationship, of course, uh, you know, between Powell and Flynn, and of course, uh, the First Amendment Praetorians as well. Uh, yet another group that, you know, was a major on the ground factor on January 6th. Question. And I think one question that occurred to me while you were speaking was, I wanted to know what you think the truth was. If you could just kind of explain to us what you think happened during the election and what you were trying to, what message you were trying to communicate uh, out to the world in some of the efforts you were talking about with, um, and there's a person's name here, redacted name of a committee staff person. Answer. So one of the points is just basically like, if you look at just Detroit, and then I ended up in Atlanta, right? So I talked to some attorneys in Atlanta that were working on the stuff. And they were in the same boat that I was. They were like, we don't understand what Lynn Wood and Sidney Powell and all those people are doing. Like, we don't understand. They're like getting all this money and then they're not even discussing the issues that were being identified by the people that were producing affidavits there too. And so we were kind of like, what the heck is going on? So it's not like this came in a vacuum where I'm just like, hey, let's just invoke the Insurrection Act for fun. It's because I was communicating with all these different people and all of us were seeing the same thing. It was like you had allegations of thumb drives. You had allegations of ballots. I knew about ballots. Page 87. So again, right, that's her, that's her theory. And by the way, you know, when she talks about the stuff that, you know, she thinks is um, legitimate, right, that's that's the, the, the Moss and Freeman stuff, right? She thinks that the, the thumb drive stuff is really good evidence, and what Sidney Powell is doing is crazy. It's just absolutely bizarre. Um, but it shows what people can do when they're a member of a cult, and, you know, um, they are avoiding cognitive dissonance. They then ask about, um, well, she talks about the role of the Dallas Republican Party, which, of course, is interesting. Again, Sidney Powell from um, North Carolina, but, of course, practices law there in Texas. Answer. Because this was another one that was, that I was kind of, like, later going, like, oh, my gosh. When I realized Dallas GOP was so dirty in all of this. And so, also, just so you know, I should tell you this. Stuart, ooh. Okay, so this is where... You can think we're nuts or think I'm nuts, but Dallas GOP ends up being someone who I end up realizing has a lot of ties to Abbott, and I'm not really a fan. So I would say that I would be like the Texas establishment faction of the Republican Party in Texas, okay? I'm not a fan of the Dallas GOP. I love some of the other factions, but they would be what we would all consider to be like our opposites, right? So when we were doing all of the anti-lockdown stuff, 
they started sending in friends, quote, friends, yeah, square, scare quotes, to Stewart out of the Dallas lock, Dallas GOP. Everybody comes out of the Dallas GOP that basically ends up directing me, Stewart, and a bunch of people. So, in a weird way, it's like, okay, this is cool. But it's just like, for me, in hindsight, when I look back, everything came out of the Dallas GOP. Does that make sense to you? Question. Yes. Yes, it does. I'm not sure it does. Answer. So it's like Russ Ramsland, Keith Lewis, ASOG, Sidney Powell, Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, which I like Alan West, Glenn Beck, I mean, shoot, True Texas Project, all of it circus ba circles back to the Dallas GOP, uh, page 113. So, again, just showing the, the connections there, at least the, the alleged connections that um, Kelly Sorrell, who may not be a reliable narrator, uh, is finding between Sidney Powell and these other, other groups that are involved. The committee also asked about the December 14th, 2020 open letter from the Oath Keepers to Trump. Um, that's the one in which Rhodes asked Trump to activate the Oath Keepers as a, a federal militia and, you know, overturn the election results. Question. Was the timing of the letter because of the December 14th electoral college voting? Answer. Probably. Because I was working with attorneys all over the country, and I was speaking, working with some constitutional guys out of Texas, and we had been throwing around different alternatives for how to challenge. Everybody was understanding the same thing. Because I had been having communication, and numerous of us had had conference calls discussing the problem that we were seeing from the viewpoint that what was being portrayed by the media and the hype and the big lie and, you know, this, like, joke mockery thing of Sidney Powell and all of that being spun up when a lot of us were on the ground and then there were issues that were spotting in Texas, that we were spotting in Texas, there were a lot of issues that were kind of being brought up all over the country at that point, and we knew they weren't matching with the narratives that were, like, kind of being publicly portrayed. So we were all trying to figure out ways to delay a certification or at least give people time to actually evaluate the situation and see if we could try to get rid of the ones that were making a mockery of everyone and see if we could actually get to the bottom of it. I'm not saying that we should have changed the results or that there would have been a difference in the results. The problem was that we all knew that what was being portrayed was not reality. Does that make sense? Question. No, no, we understand. 138. Again, not sure it does actually make sense. Um, but nonetheless, it's interesting what she's relaying here is that she's conferring with groups of attorneys, quote, from all over the country who are looking at ways to arrange what she in another spot calls a pause. Um, I, I don't I don't doubt her account, right? She probably was in contact with people that she calls constitutional guys out of Texas. They should have some follow-up about names for some of these people, by the way. That would have been great. Um, but she never seems to make the connection that Trump won Texas by six percentage points, and she apparently never bothers to interrogate that basic fact. If there's all this skullduggery, why are they, you know, why why did Trump win Texas by six points? Um, in any event, with regard to the actual conduct of the conspiracy, 
I don't think there's any real basis to doubt her testimony, even if some of the conclusions she arrives at with regard to the motivations of some of the participants, her fellow participants, are a suspect. Now, of course, you know, again, this it's completely in it's in character for Rhodes to find this vulnerable woman and turn her into a tool to advance his agenda. But, you know, she's not legally crazy, even if she believes some crazy things. And I don't think she's wrong in pointing to Powell as a major player in the effort to obstruct the peaceful transfer of power. Powell was on the same side as Sorrell, ultimately, even if her theories were so laughable that Sorrell, someone who's been found not competent, uh, thought that Powell was acting in bad faith. Which, of course, you know, again, I mean, very real sense... Yeah, she was acting in bad faith. Maybe one of the reasons why uh, Powell's lies were so bad was because ultimately she really didn't believe them. Uh, you know, I mean, pot, meat, and kettle, right? All these people are bad faith actors. It's also possible that some of the affidavits, and uh, we'll move on now from Sorrell. Um, she's talking about these affidavits, right? You know, there's the, the stuff that Powell's doing, but then there's these affidavits. And the affidavits are solid, right? Um looking for information on some of those and in connection with Sidney Powell uh, I turned to Dustin Stockton uh, who was one of the people collecting affidavits on Powell's behalf. Question and for the like sworn affidavits, were those things affidavits you obtained or had they already been prepared? Answer primarily they'd been submitted to Sidney Powell or Lynn Wood I remember them specifically like she submitted her I remember reading through her submission, and it was like hundreds of pages long with, right, lots of different things. And I remember I remember it specifically because we disagreed on some of the tactics in that some of what was included there had to come from people that we kind of deemed, when we evaluated them, to be less credible. Question. So, did you say you disagreed on tactics with Sidney Powell and Lynn Wood? Answer. Yeah, so when we saw what they were doing publicly and presenting publicly, and I read through the hundreds of pages of what they had submitted to the court, I remember thinking that it had, it was a mistake to include some of the people that they included, because uh, we'd met them at the stop. I think in several instances, we hadn't even allowed them to speak on the stage because we found them that uncredible. Page 54 of Dustin Stockton's transcript. So, once again, you know, again, you've got all these people, Kelly Sorrell, Dustin Stockton, Rudy Giuliani, all throwing Powell under the bus. Well, Powell has made a deal here. Um, and, you know, some, some there, if you look for across all the transcripts, uh, you'll find that Powell's name appears very often. Um, I'm going to summarize uh, uh, some of these um, rather quickly. Uh, but, you know, a lot of the main figures in the Trump conspiracy appear to be throwing Powell under the bus. Um, some of the times her name appears, it's because the committee has asked about her. And um, so some people deny having uh, any knowledge of her or having interacted with her during the time period under uh, consideration. So, for example, her name appears in uh, Frank Scava's transcript on page 39, but only for him to say, no, I, I don't know. Uh, Keith Kellogg's transcript on page 200, same thing. Ken Kukowski on pages 57, 58, and 192, 
same thing. I don't know, you know, didn't contact. Uh, Ken Cuccinelli on pages 30, 52, and 72. Um, Acting Defense Secretary Christopher Miller on pages 61 and 71. And Arena Grosu of the Jericho March on page 28. Um, And there are probably more. There are probably more transcripts where they ask about Powell and the the witness says, "I, I don't know. Whether they're representing that honestly or not, I don't know. Um, but interestingly, if you, you, it's like, what's the point? Why, why does this matter? Why does what Sidney Powell doing matters when, after all, she lost these cases, right? Well, if you go to the actual rioters, and I usually don't look at their transcripts very much, but Powell's name appears regularly in those transcripts as well. And even if the courts didn't find Powell credible, guess what? The attackers on the ground did. There's a reason why she's on the on the you know the speaker's roster uh, at the ellipse. So maybe Sidney Powell's lawsuits all failed, but what they were was effective as propaganda to the MAGA mob. For example, writer Robert Shornack mentioned specifically that he was excited to see Sidney Powell speak at the ellipse on page 31 of his transcript. Writer Janet Bueller specifically mentions Giuliani in Powell's press conference as her point of entry for Stop the Steal on page 27 of her transcript. Writer Annie Howell mentions Powell on page 13 as someone she began following on social media after the election. Um, Also on page 41 of her transcript, the questioner either misspeaks or the transcriptionist makes an error, uh, and they actually address Howell, Annie Howell, as Ms. Powell. Um, which, you know, kind of odd when I'm looking for, for Powell. And, uh, she, you know, Powell's name actually does appear in Howell's transcript, but one of the times it appears, it's apparently a typo or someone misspeaking. Proud boy George Meza says that he found Powell credible on pages 57 and 58 of his transcript. And on page 11 of his transcript, George Tenney, who pleaded to felony civil disorder and obstruction of an official proceeding, said that Powell was one of the sources that he had found credible and motivated him to attend on January 6th and ultimately to do his crimes. But then later on in his transcript, he came says uh, that he came to realize that Powell's claims were, to use his word, quote, crap, page 56 of his transcript. Okay, so that's what the writers think. So whatever Powell did, you know, with regard to uh, her phony baloney lawsuits and her uh, weird claims about how she's unleashing the Kraken when really what she's doing is just gumming up the court system, um, you know, the rioters found Powell compelling. She, you know, total ban- she did abandon. She threw enough stuff at the wall, and for the, the MAGA cultists, they believed when the courts didn't. Alexander Preate, uh, who I've mentioned before, an associate of Steve Bannon, um, is asked about Powell several times. And she claims that Powell had been a client of hers a long time ago, but that she hadn't spoken with Powell in years. It's on page 36 of her transcript. On page 52, Preate says that it was possible that she herself, Preate, had been the first to introduce Powell to Bannon years ago. And on page 54, Preate claims that Powell's Dominion theories were too nutty 
even for Steve Bannon, to run on his podcast. I'll quote this a little bit because it's amusing, right? Too nutty for Steve Bannon. Question. Mr. Bannon shared a view that he thought the Dominion allegations being raised by Liz Powell were out there or crazy or not correct? Answer. So I don't really recall all that Sydney was talking about or really anything much of what she was saying. But specifically with regards to Dominion, Steve on several occasions said that that's just not, he said it publicly on the show, that that's just not something that he was interested in. And just the feeling I got from what he was saying is that he's just not going to, doesn't, not going to go there with that, about that. Other people can talk about it, but that's not what he was going to talk about. And we, I happen to know the representative for Dominion uh, for many years. And Steve wanted to have the Dominion people on the show to defend against these allegations. And Steve wanted, uh, sorry, so he had asked several times to try and get the Dominion people to come on the show with a 100% promise that he, like other Democrats that he had had on, or other people that disagree with him, that he would give them a forum to say whatever they wanted, but they didn't want to do it. Question, who's the Dominion rep that you had worked with? Answer, Tony Fratto. Yeah. Okay, so interesting uh, to make that connection there. Uh, apparently, Alexander Pirate, first person to introduce Sidney Powell to Steve Bannon, and uh, Steve Bannon didn't want to even touch the Kraken theories with a 10-foot pole. Um, they're both seemingly surprised, by the way, why uh, Dominion's PR team wouldn't want to appear on the Steve Bannon podcast. Sorry, uh, look, if I'm Tony Fratto, whoever this guy is, good call. Good call, Tony. I, I think that that was uh, the right play there. Now, I'm leaving out some of the best material against Powell herself, of course, because that would take too much time, and a lot of that material actually made it into the final report, report which I'm sure many of you have read. Um, but if you want to understand the scope of the conspiracy and the scope of Powell's role in it, it is hard to underestimate the significance of Powell flipping. Um, she's got a lot more deep connections with sort of Trump world and the far right world, the CNP world, than someone like Ken Cheesebro, who ultimately, in some sense, uh, was more effectual in his plotting uh, than a lot of what Powell did. Um, you know, again, Powell, ultimately, it seems that the main effect of you know, other than the, the Coffee County breach where she's committed some crimes, but the main effect of, of her lawsuits and her manufacturing evidence and all of these things and, um, you know, paying people to, you know, uh, testify as, as, quote, expert witnesses, you know, uh, getting people who are actually like, uh, you know, CPAs to somehow become election experts, that sort of thing. The main effect of that was, was propaganda. And that uh, shows up in the transcripts of the rioters who were actually impressed uh, when even nutty people in sort of the, at the elite level, the Steve Bannons, um, were apparently and sincerely and publicly disavowing the Kraken theories uh, from relatively early on. Um, finally, I, I'd like to mention another group of these witnesses in whom Powell's, you know, Powell's name appears in the transcript. And these are the people who take the, invoke the fifth when they are asked about Sidney Powell. So you have, for example, Philip Lulsdorf, 
of the First Amendment Praetorians. Who takes the fifth when asked about Powell on page 28? Garrett Ziegler, page 15, takes the fifth. Mike Roman, asked about Sidney Powell, takes the fifth on page 27. Mike Flynn, takes the fifth on page 16. Of course, he takes the fifth with regard to everything, but we know he's an associate of Powell. Kelly Ward of the Arizona Republican Party takes the fifth on page 28 when they ask her about Powell. Uh, Phil Waldron, page 15 of his transcript, also takes the fifth, etc., and so forth. So there are a lot of people taking the Fifth Amendment when you ask them about Sidney Powell, and presumably she's going to be able to offer evidence in Georgia, and quite possibly D.C. as well, uh, when it comes time for these issues to go to trial. <laughs> Sorry about the, the dog interruption there. Again, we don't honestly know if uh, all these people interacted with Powell uh, just because they took a Fifth Amendment. Um, you know, some of them took the Fifth Amendment with regard to all questions. Nonetheless, we might expect there to be some interesting uh, evidence, you know, provided by Powell uh, to the extent that she might not be credible. You know, that, that's not great. On the other hand, um, there might be other things like useful documentation. In any event, it's clear that things are developing rapidly, both in Fulton County and uh, in D.C. Haven't mentioned the civil cases. Um, Trump gave yet another loony speech where he announced once again that it's communism. He used the word communism, I think, about 30 times in the space of, of 20 minutes. So, 20 minutes, 20 seconds. So, really... You want to look at, you know, how things are, are going for Trump. The Probably the more he talks about communism and how it's the beginning of communism, how everything is communist now, uh, pretty much indicates how things are going for him. Also, there was the gag order that uh, Judge Chutkin had ordered. She has uh, issued a stay on that, pending an appeal. That needs to happen, right? That needs to be reinstated because um, at some point, there's going to be some kind of act of violence instigated. Indeed, you know, someone who's already faced charges because of threats to Judge Shutkin. So look forward to that. Hopefully that gag order will be reinstated because I think it is absolutely necessary. And I, you know, it, it's in the interest of justice. If anyone has a demonstrated ability to motivate people who are of dubious uh, decision-making ability, people who make some poor life choices and are willing to give it all up for, for you know, their leader, that's Donald Trump. So that is something that hopefully will happen soon. Um, not sure when I will get the next episode out, but thank you so much for your listenership. And we will all follow these events as, as they develop uh, rather closely in the weeks and months to come. Until next time, thank you. And have a lovely fall and a happy Halloween.